Ahoy crew, and welcome back aboard the Maritime History Podcast. Today we have before us episode 31, A Persian Navy, an Ionian Revolt. When we last spoke, we limited our conversation to the most famous of ancient ships, the Trireme. I felt that it would be beneficial to take a deep dive on the ship itself so that we had a good handle on it before we began to talk about the scenarios in which it played a key role. I trust that you were all amenable to that approach, and since it's too late anyways if you weren't, let's go ahead today and get into those scenarios, complete with personalities and intrigues, that we will have to outline as we go. Some of those personalities we've alluded to in episodes past, but I will try to give enough detail here so that everything makes sense. And along those lines, I'm not planning to get as in-depth as other podcasts have that cover the broader scope of Greek history, with the angles on things like the development of various political structures, philosophy, um, land battles especially, and things like that. If you're wanting a much broader sweep there, then do check out the History of Ancient Greece podcast by Ryan Stitt, along with a more recent podcast that I've very much enjoyed catching up on. That one is called History in the Making, and it's put out by Rob Sims. In his first season, he's covered the emergence of Athens as an ancient superpower, following then the progression from the birth of democracy, all the way down through the Greco-Persian Wars, and then on through the Peloponnesian War. It's a very well-done podcast that includes a broader scope than we will cover here, so definitely do give that one a listen. I think you'll be pleased. Now, you're all probably aware by this point that I attempt to keep us relatively focused on the aspects related to maritime history, although I'm sure you're also aware that I do stray from time to frequent time, and I probably shoehorn in a few more details there than is prudent, although I think they're very useful for context and for helping us understand everything that's going on in the ancient world as it relates to maritime history. All that is to say that my main goal today is to frame the lead-up to and the earliest stages of the Greco-Persian Wars. Ships and a naval battle or two play a large role in this stage of affairs in ancient Greece, so we'll focus on those things and take the rest as needed. I'm sure I've dropped one too many allusions to people and events in the lead-up to today's episode, so to get a bit of a rolling start today, let's recap the salient events in the time period that we've covered in the past few episodes, and maybe we'll sprinkle in a few additional insights to help frame the discussion today. To boil our last five episodes down to the essentials, We've been looking at Greek colonization and the role that ships played there, including why they colonized the places that they did, and how maritime themes existed in and influenced Greek mythology and worldview. The Phoenicians and Carthaginians have also played a large role there, of course, but looming at the edges of a few recent episodes were the Persians, or at least the groups that are technically their predecessors who functioned in a similar role in the ancient world prior to the Persian takeover. If we open today at around the year 600 BCE, we could say in summation 
that we're still well in the age of the tyranny as a political form in Greece, democracy hasn't really emerged yet. And this is actually relevant to a maritime-focused study of Greek history, but those issues will come in later. Up to this point, the main thorn in the Greek side has been Carthage, more so than it has been Persia. Carthage was, of course, the major maritime power of the central Mediterranean, controlling trade from there all the way through the western portion of the sea. We've discussed at length the conflicts between Greece and Carthage over the major islands of the central Mediterranean, but up until the late 500s BCE, Persia didn't play that much of a role in Greek affairs, almost none at all near the Greek mainland or further west. Persia was a land-based empire, since it emerged mainly from a group of nomads who then expanded to control the scope of the empire. The Persian Empire that emerged was then not technically landlocked, it controlled territory that bordered several different seas, but the culture from which this empire emerged was not a seafaring culture in the least, and this fact will play a role in recurring forms in the drama that's about to unfold on our episodes to come. Now, to zoom in on the region that's our focus today, Ionia, we can also say that around the years 560 to 550, Croesus, the king of Lydia, subjugated the Greeks of Ionia. Herodotus says that, quote, before the reign of Croesus, all Hellenes had been free. And although Croesus himself maintained a fairly good reputation in the eyes of the Ionian Greeks that he subjugated, Lydia could in the end not stand against Cyrus the Great and the Medes as they expanded their borders west. Cyrus laid siege to Sardis in 547 BCE and proceeded to take control of Ionia as Croesus had done. However, Cyrus treated the Ionian Greek cities with a heavier hand, since they had initially refused to aid Cyrus in his conquest of Lydia. It's in this context that we discussed the city of Phocaea and saw how the Phocaeans fled their city entirely after Cyrus took it over, and then they ended up in Sicily where they undertook piracy and clashed with Carthage instead of Persia. It's right about in this time frame that we see an anecdote from Herodotus that reveals a moment that foreshadows quite a lot of what is to come. After the Phocaeans fled Ionia and Cyrus continued to take the Ionian cities by force while leaving some of the others alone because they bowed the knee without the need for a show of force, Basically, though, he conquered enough cities to show the others what they would have in store if they caused trouble. But anyways, as this continues, the Ionian cities all send messengers to Sparta to beg for aid in their resistance to Cyrus. Resistance such as it is, anyway. Sparta, true to Spartan form, isn't interested in intervening militarily on the behalf of other cities, especially cities so far away, but they at least consent to send a pentaconter over to do some spying, and while they're over near Ionia and Cyrus, the Spartans decide to send a representative to Sardis to the court of Cyrus himself 
in the hopes that a self-referential name drop would maybe give Cyrus pause in messing with Ionia. Sparta, in the year 545 BCE, did perhaps have more name recognition when it came to military matters than any other Greek polis. It's probably safe to assume that the Spartan representatives relayed to Cyrus in a laconic manner something to the effect that he ought not inflict any damage to Greek territory or he would have to suffer the wrath of the Spartans. The response of Cyrus is, in essence, to say, who even are you Spartans and how many of you are there? And besides, I don't really care anyway. You're part of the Greek world, so if I live long enough, I'll come give you trouble of your own after I finish putting the Ionians in their place, and there's not really anything you can do to stop me. Many histories point to this battle of words between the Spartan emissaries and Cyrus in his own court. They point to this as the first meeting of the Persian Empire expansion with the stubborn resistance of the Greeks from Greece proper, as opposed to the Greeks in Ionia. Skipping over quite a bit here for the sake of brevity, Cyrus dies in 530 BCE and is succeeded by his son Cambyses. He continues his father's trend of expanding the empire, pushing into Egypt and conquering a lot of territory there. This is the area that we discussed in a chunk of our last episode, where we said that Polycrates, the tyrant of Samos, sent a trireme fleet down to Egypt to aid Cambyses in his conquest there. It seems that Polycrates had previously been an ally of Egypt. He'd received a large part of the funding to build this early trireme fleet from the pharaoh, but when Cambyses in Persia appeared to have the upper hand, Polycrates deftly shifted his support behind Persia and abandoned the pharaoh and his armies. In the end, his duplicitousness came back to bite him, and after that very same trireme fleet attempted to turn against him and seize Samos, Polycrates was later assassinated in Sardis, and Persia gained control of the island of Samos. Cambyses himself doesn't play any larger role in our study of maritime history, but Herodotus does point to the fact that the ancient sources held Cambyses in a relatively high regard. Some even felt that he was better and more successful than his father Cyrus, since Cambyses held his father's conquests and then continued to expand them to, quote, control Egypt and to gain control of the seas. Herodotus doesn't supply specifics there, but several historians have proposed their theories for how the land-based Persian Empire would have gone about incorporating their various conquests into a system that could build and administer a navy. So that topic will be a focus for us here today. To continue the chronology for now, though, Cambyses dies in 522 BCE, and after a bit of a power struggle, Darius emerges to seize the throne. It's with the ascendance of Darius I to the throne of the Achaemenid Empire that our story really begins today, so I hope you'll forgive the extended repetition of the context and the progression that led us up to this point. If you aren't familiar with the rest of the backstory, or indeed the story as it will continue for us then, 
I would recommend the book Persian Fire by Tom Holland. It's a great retelling of the Greco-Persian Wars for the uninitiated, but he does a great job relaying the details where necessary while still making the book an enjoyable read. I rather enjoyed his take on it all, and his writing style is very inviting. Alright, in the years following the emergence of Darius as the ruler of the Persian Empire, the empire as a whole was the scene of quite a few smaller revolts in the various regions that made up its whole. Darius duly quelled these rebellions, and after a period of about six or seven years, he got the wheels of empire expansion rolling again. Part of that expansion saw Darius and his armies conquer the region stretching east into modern-day Pakistan, the region all the way to the Indus River itself. This conquest of the Indus River region brings up an episode that doesn't get discussed too much in histories of the Greco-Persian Wars, mainly because it's so tangential. But for us, it's pretty interesting, and it could even be important, actually. After gaining control of the lands around the Indus River in about 515 BCE, Darius appointed an Ionian Greek named Skylax to explore the Indus River on behalf of the Persian king. Herodotus gives us a few lines about this exploration, saying that Darius sent this expedition to find out where the Indus River emptied into the sea. After starting at a point far upriver, we're told that Skylax and his men, quote, sailed down the river toward the east and the sunrise until they came in the 30th month to that place where from which the Egyptian king sent the above-mentioned Phoenicians to sail around Libya. This mention of Phoenicians sailing around Libya comes from an earlier story where Herodotus told us that the Egyptian pharaoh Necho sent some Phoenicians out from an Egyptian city on the coast of the Erythrean Sea, more technically the Arabian Gulf as it extended north from the Indian Ocean to form Egypt's eastern border. From this unnamed city, the Phoenicians had sailed south along the coast of Africa, or Libya as it was termed by the ancients, and according to Herodotus, they took three entire years to circumnavigate the continent, enter the pillars of Heracles from the west, and to make their way back to Egypt via the Mediterranean. The telltale clue for historians who believe this story of circumnavigation from Herodotus is that he includes a mention of how the sun was on the ship's right side at one point as they sailed around Libya. Now, if you're sailing east to west around the tip of South Africa, to eventually turn back toward the north after passing the Cape of Good Hope, then the sun would indeed be on your starboard side. It would be to the north of you. This fact points to the possibility that the Phoenicians may have actually circumnavigated Africa, as Herodotus relayed. Although it's a bit funny to note that Herodotus himself includes the disclaimer that he simply heard this story secondhand and that he doesn't personally find it credible, because there's no way that the sun would be on your right-hand side. All of this exploration talk is a universe unto itself although much of it did take place in the same relative time period. It tends to get lumped together and discussed separately, 
But I thought it would be important to note the bigger picture that as Persia was expanding and eventually warring with the Greeks, also as the Egyptians were warring with the Persians, and Carthage fought with Greece, as all of this happened all over the ancient world, explorers were still doing their thing, out and about, trying to chart new waters, to boldly go where no man had gone before, you might say. Let's get back to Darius now, though, and if you do, by the way, want to sate your curiosity on the exploration facet of things, then I'd remind you to visit Guillaume and his History of Exploration podcast that has covered both of the aforementioned stories in detail. Darius, though, after taking control of all the way east to the Indus Valley, he then turned his sights north. He quelled another rebellion in Babylon on his way back north, and then he continued all the way through west, going through Anatolia, and then he crossed the Black Sea at the site of the Bosphorus Straits by constructing a bridge of boats, presumably a pontoon bridge like many other similar boat bridges that we will see used further down through history. It's with the building of this bridge that the Persian king officially crosses from Asia over into Europe, and it's with this campaign against the resident tribes of the Black Sea's shores that Ionian involvement with Persia begins to really increase the friction, which of course results in a more heated relationship between Persia and the Ionian Greek cities. The Greek cities on the coast of Asia Minor never really became subject to Persian rulership, quite like many of the other cities of the Near East had seemed content to do. The Ionian cities were of course still part of the Persian Empire, and Persia flexed its muscles when it needed to. But some of the cities, and Miletus in particular, had enjoyed a special status in Persian eyes thanks to the wealth that continuously flowed into the cities there because of trade, also because of the economic prosperity that Miletus and some of the other cities had enjoyed, thanks to, in turn, their early involvement in the innovation of minted coinage. From the Persian perspective, it wasn't wealth alone that made the coastal Ionian cities important, although that was certainly a key, but importance also was found in the ships that helped make those cities wealthy. Persia was, as we've said, a largely land-based empire, but by conquering and subjugating peoples like the Phoenicians and now the Ionian Greeks, Persia could press the ships and maritime-specific skills of those people into use on behalf of Persian interests. That's why we're now talking about Persia's expansion into Europe around the Black Sea. This is the first time where the Ionian Greeks were really pressed into contributing ship power on behalf of Persian expansion, if, that is, we exempt the case of Polycrates, since he did so of his own duplicitous volition. Herodotus tells us that the Ionians contributed men and ships on the Black Sea to Darius's campaign against the lesser tribes that inhabited the western shores of that sea. The Ionians were specifically tasked with sailing ahead of the Persian army to the Danube River, where they were to build another bridge of boats so that the army could cross north into Scythian territory. Darius had a particular interest in taking control of their territory, since the Scythians had been a historical pest 
against Persian interests in the west of their empire. It's here with this tasking of the Ionian contingents to build the boat bridge that we can graft in a point about the way in which Persia ruled over the Ionian cities. The Ionian Greeks proved a particularly difficult region for the Persians to rule. That's what I was alluding to a moment ago by saying that they didn't quite subject themselves as fully as most of the other cities that were invaded did. In other regions, the Persian king could merely place a satrap to oversee the local elites and then trust them to administer the cities and region on his behalf. And in most places, this structure worked well enough. Many historians point to Judea as an example where the priests functioned as an elite to oversee and administer societal rule on behalf of the king. The people then were content to go along to get along, for the most part. In Ionia, the unique structure of the Greek city-states complicated matters to the point that the Persian king sponsored a local tyrant in each Greek city-state, and these tyrants were then overseen by a Persian satrap who kept a closer eye on the region and reported back to Darius himself. The tyrants in these Ionian cities, like Miletus, they were forced to walk a tightrope between keeping the Persian satrap happy and keeping the people of the city happy. The Greek tradition of animosity toward outsiders or barbarians ran strong in the Ionian cities too, so historians tend to categorize the common man of the Greek cities there as somewhat xenophobic and quite antagonistic toward the tyrant who would dare to rule the city on behalf of a barbarian overlord. However, the cultural elite and the aristocracies in Miletus and most of the other cities of the region, they were quite smitten with the luxury and wealth in the cultures of the people even further to their east. The mainland Greeks sometimes poked fun at them for this affinity. But in the Ionian cities themselves, this served only to give the tyrants a horrible reputation in the eyes of the common man. With all of this in mind, then, we can see how when the tyrants decided to obey Darius and send fleets north to aid in the Scythian campaign, this, for the most part, served to only further annoy the common folk of the Ionian cities, and some of the seeds for revolt are already being laid here. The tyrants didn't resist Darius, though, since, understandably, he was the one who could put them out on the curb. It's also likely that the Ionian tyrants hoped to realize personal gain in the wake of the Persian conquests as well. We see an example of this in the story of Histiaeus asking Darius for part of the conquered territory after Darius conquered Thrace in this same relative time period. Now, aside from all the self-interests that play into the situation in 513 BCE, that's about where we are now. We finally have come to the scene where the Ionians built the boat bridge across the Danube, and the Persian armies have crossed north into Scythia to attempt a confrontation. Herodotus shares a story about how the Scythians attempted to convince the Greek tyrants to cut the bridge and to trap Darius and his armies in the northern lands as winter was impending, a blow that would surely have weakened the Persian forces. One Greek tyrant, a guy named Miltiades, 
He thought this was a good idea, and he attempted to convince his fellow tyrants to betray the Persians. Despite the momentary glimmer of a Greek resistance here, the tyrants, all the other ones, they can't bring themselves to betray the king by whose mercy they rule. That's what the tyrant of Miletus says, anyhow, and his opinion wins the day. Thus, the Persian campaign against the Scythians passes without any real incident other than this faint glimmer of a potential Ionian revolution. However, it's through this story that we get a glimpse of the tyrant of Miletus. In 513, his name was Histiaeus. We mentioned him a second ago. And there we alluded to the fact that he asked Darius for control of part of the territory that Persia had conquered. Darius actually granted this request, initially, anyway. But when advisors to the Persian king realized the danger that this tyrant from Miletus posed in his ambition, the danger that it posed to the king's long-term control of Miletus and Ionia as a whole, they advised the king to knock Histiaeus down a notch by rewarding him with a, a bit of a non-reward, one more suited to keeping the greedy tyrant in check. The reward was for Histiaeus to become a counselor to the king, the catch being that he would now need to reside in Susa at the court of the king, far away from Miletus and far away from any direct damage that Histiaeus could do to Persian interests there. This was an obvious ploy to curb the damage that the Milesian tyrant could do, and with the departure of Histiaeus from Miletus, we now are introduced to a major player in the main events for us today, a man named Aristagoras of Miletus. He was the nephew of Histiaeus, and he took over the tyranny of Miletus after his uncle's departure. Herodotus tells us that in the time frame when Aristagoras took over as the stand-in tyrant of Miletus, that there was some discontent in the regions surrounding the city, extending even to the island of Naxos, which is part of the Cyclades, in the south of the Aegean Sea. When Aristagoras took the reins of tyranny in Miletus, he probably realized in short measure that he had stepped into a hornet's nest, on the brink of explosion. Miletus and the other Ionian cities, as we've seen, were the sites of more strained class strife than other cities in the Persian shadow, so that was one problem to begin with. Like his uncle before him, Aristagoras had to balance keeping the lower classes placated, with also keeping the Persian satrap and king happy that he was the tyrant, as opposed to someone else. On top of all that, it's right around this time, between 510 and 500 BCE, that democratic revolution visited Athens, where the first true democratic reforms of Cleisthenes were instituted and changed the government of Athens dramatically. Historian Tom Holland frames the importance of this event to Ionia in this way. He writes, quote, the revolution in Athens, a city which claimed in the mists of the fabulous past to have sent the first colonists to Ionia, had been followed as enthusiastically in Miletus as in the islands of the Aegean. Calls for the establishment of a similar democracy 
for the overthrow of the tyranny and an end to barbarian rule were growing increasingly violent in the city's streets. With this sentiment just beneath the surface of things in Miletus, we should now turn back to Herodotus as he tells us about an opportunity that presented itself to the scheming Aristagoras. The temptation to cook up schemes uh, seems to have run in the family, what with the history of his uncle Histiaeus, but we're told that in 500 BCE, a group of wealthy men from the island of Naxos sailed over to Miletus with a proposal for Aristagoras. Naxos was one of the wealthiest islands in the Cyclades, and since it too had been the scene of social strife in this time frame, a group of wealthy men who'd been exiled from the island decided to enlist the aid of mainland forces in their bid to get back into power on Naxos. They sailed to Miletus and asked Aristagoras to send some military forces to help them take control of their island. And since he was the schemer at heart, Aristagoras viewed the proposal as a chance for himself to ultimately gain control of the island. What Herodotus tells us, though, is that he didn't feel that Miletus personally had the forces needed to take over the island of Naxos. He told the aristocrats that were asking for aid that since the rulers of Naxos possessed many warships and soldiers, that Aristagoras would have to enlist the aid of the Persian satrap, a man named Artaphernes. As the satrap, Artaphernes was basically the man who administered the western part of Asia Minor on behalf of the Persian king Darius, so it was Artaphernes' job to keep the Ionian Greek tyrants in order and to keep the peace in the Greek cities there. When Aristagoras approached Artaphernes with the proposal of launching an offensive against Naxos, we can understand how Artaphernes would have been immediately intrigued. Darius was obviously still open to and seeking the chance to expand the Persian Empire, so Aristagoras arranged the proposal nicely and served it up on a silver platter to the Persian satrap. The way he presented it, this was a chance for Persia to gain control of Naxos and her neighboring islands at little cost. And of course, he made sure to mention that Euboea and mainland Greece would then be within easy striking distance if Persia had naval bases in the Aegean. Initially, Aristagoras asks for a reasonable number of ships to attack Naxos. According to Herodotus, he says, quote, 100 ships will suffice to subjugate these islands. We're told that Artaphernes answers him this way. You do a great service to the house of the king by introducing this plan, and all your suggestions are good ones, except for the number of ships. Instead of 100 ships, I will have 200 ready for you with the arrival of spring. The season for sailing the Aegean was quite important, as the winds during the winter made sailing much more difficult, especially in a large fleet that required organization. Now, before we continue into the story here, including all about the things that can and do go wrong in the so-called Naxian expedition, it's important to take a moment to consider a point addressed by a historian named H.T. Wallinga. 
In a lengthy article about the Ionian Revolt, Walenga raises the point that in his response to the Naxos aristocrats' request for aid, Aristagoras seems to indicate that Miletus doesn't possess the forces of ships necessary to launch an expedition against the island. The implication there is that the Persian satrap is in control of the naval and or military forces that may have been needed, that Miletus as a city didn't have a naval force to speak of, or at least not one of any consequence. This apparent state of affairs in Miletus does stand opposed to the view that many modern scholars take, since modern books and analyses tend to assume that Miletus and the other Ionian cities had naval forces that they then made available to the Persians once Persia flexed its muscles a bit. To flesh out the argument made by Walenga, there's every possibility that in the years prior to Persia's takeover, that the city-states of Ionia didn't have large naval forces, rather that the bulk of their maritime reach was to be found in the existence of merchant ships that carried out the trade and colonization. If a city-state had need of a naval fleet at any point, then they could easily commandeer the privately owned ships of the region, load them down with troops, and supplement the transport fleet with whatever triremes were around. As we saw in the last episode, triremes weren't readily available to city-states around the Mediterranean until quite late before the Greco-Persian Wars, and even then they were only within the ability of the wealthiest of cities to build and outfit. The concluding proposal made by Walenga in this article is that perhaps the Ionian cities never had substantial naval forces of their own until Persia took control of the region. Now, this theory does seem to strain the limits of what we could envision. After all, how could we admit that the wealthiest and most cultured cities of Ionia did not have triremes within their maritime arsenals? They were, after all, near to the technological prowess of the Phoenicians and Egyptians, so it seems reasonable to assume that the technology of the trireme would have made its way to Ionia before it arrived in mainland Greece. And, ultimately, it may have done. However, the literary evidence that we have to work with seems to leave a gray area here. It seems to indicate that Corinth and other Greek cities along with Polycrates and his tyrannical fleet, these were among the first trireme fleets to exist in Greece. Ionia may have lagged behind the innovation here, such that when Persia took over the Ionian cities, she then had to levy onerous taxation in order to fund the rapid buildup of a trireme navy to send to Naxos. If Persia began to fund a large naval buildup in the years leading up to the Scythian expedition where Ionia sent ships to aid Darius, continuing toward 500 BCE and leading into the Greco-Persian Wars, then Persia would have had to exact a burdensome tribute on the subjects of the empire, including at that point the Ionian Greek city-states. Triremes were by no means cheap to construct, and as we saw a bit last episode, so the economic burden of building up a large navy would have served to exacerbate any societal or class tension that was probably already existent in the cities under the Persian thumb. 
Now, if this proposed theory is an accurate painting of how things stood in 500 BCE, when the Naxian aristocrats approached Aristagoras, then it helps explain a few things. Herodotus said that Naxos was a powerful island with ships of its own, which sounds strange if we're going to say that Miletus had few ships of war. However, we discussed last time that the tyrant of Samos, Polycrates, had built up a fleet of triremes using money from the Egyptian pharaoh, and that those ships were sent to aid Cambyses in conquering Egypt, but that they didn't ultimately end up there, and that they instead turned back to Samos, they attempted to oust the tyrant, but failing at that, they then allied themselves with Sparta and Corinth. Naxos was a main Cycladic island that may have come under the rule of Polycrates prior to the Egypt-Cambyses debacle. We said that Polycrates had a Pentaconter fleet that he used to terrorize the neighboring islands around Samos, and he gained a reputation for being a vindictive and ambitious tyrant in the region. At the risk of overcomplicating matters here, which I'm a bit fearful that I've already gone and done, the theory proposed by Walinga is that Naxos had an unusually strong navy thanks to their previous association with Polycrates, and that the trireme fleet that may have still been around following the events of the previous few decades had made its way to Naxos. If that was the case, and if Persia exercised a tighter control over building a navy than many historians tend to think, then it makes sense why Aristogoras would have had to seek out Persian aid in mounting an expedition against Naxos. And, if Naxos did indeed have an unusually powerful naval force stationed in the center of the Aegean, then it makes complete sense why Aristogoras and Persia would have used the pretext of aiding these aristocrats to, in actuality, build up a navy of 200-plus warships and send them to eliminate the main navy in the Aegean that could be a buffer between Persia and Greece. Persia wasn't the only actor with interests at play here, though, and from what Herodotus tells us, Aristagoras was motivated merely by ambition. He expected to be made ruler of Naxos if he could deliver the island to the control of Darius and Persia. Essentially, then, the interests of Miletus and Persia aligned in this matter. And although we can't know with great certainty where the ships came from, and whether Persia had a tighter control of the naval forces than traditional history has tended to think, we do know that in the spring of 499 BCE, 200 ships departed from Miletus and route to their intended target, Naxos. In organizing the expedition, Artaphernes had given command of the fleet to his cousin, a man named Megabates. No sooner had the expedition gotten underway than things went off the rails. I'll pick up with Herodotus here for a bit, since he describes matters with such intriguing detail. Opening his description with a bit of a spoiler here, and a note from me that the Skylax mentioned in this paragraph is a different one than we discussed previously, here's what Herodotus wrote in Book 5 of the Histories. Since this expedition was not destined to destroy the Naxians, what took place was the following. 
As Megabates was making his rounds of the watch on the ships, he happened to notice that no one was on guard duty on the ship from Mindos. Infuriated by this, he ordered his bodyguards to find the man in charge of this ship, whose name was Skylax, and to tie him fast so that his head would project through an oar hole of the ship and hang outside it while his body lay inside. When Skylax had been bound in this position, someone reported to Aristagoras that Megabates had disgracefully abused his guest friend from Mindos by tying him up. Aristagoras went straight to the Persian and pleaded with him, but when he could obtain nothing that he requested, he went to Skylax and freed the man himself. Megabates completely lost his temper at Aristagoras when he learned about this, but Aristagoras said to him, What business is this of yours? Were you not sent by Artaphernes to obey me and to sail wherever I ordered you to go? Why are you being such a troublemaker? This response by Aristagoras aggravated Megabates so much that after fuming over it until nightfall, he then sent some men by boat to Naxos to reveal to the Naxians the news of the impending assault against them. Basically, what we have here is just a personal feud between the Persian and Greek leaders of this expedition that results in the Persian leader sabotaging the entire thing. After Megabates did so by warning Naxos, the Naxians had enough forewarning to gather their crops inside the city walls and to hunker down for the siege. Now, I should note here that some historians feel that Herodotus is... Um, not in possession of the entire reason why the Naxos expedition failed, and that he's personalizing the reasons for why that happened a bit much, a lot of historians tend to think that there's no way the Persian leader would have sabotaged the entire expedition over such a petty feud. But that's the story as Herodotus gives it to us. After the Naxians were warned, they had time to hunker down and Aristagoras and Megabates didn't come prepared to wait out a long siege. Since Naxos also happened to be an island, the Persian Ionian fleet could only last four months before they eventually ran out of supplies and money. Aristagoras then had failed, and he'd broken his promise to Artaphernes that Persia would be able to gain control of the Aegean. He'd also undermined his own position as the stand-in tyrant of Miletus. But before we get to the aftermath of the failed Naxos expedition, let's rewind just a second and consider the interesting punishment that was levied to Skylax in the passage above. To my mind, this punishment sounds almost like the punishment of locking someone in the stocks, minus the public humiliation in the town square. In the town square, I guess the criminal had to worry about getting pelted with rotten food, or I'm sure much worse, thrown by the townspeople. But at least he didn't have to worry about being constantly battered by waves hitting the side of the ship. In their book about the trireme, Morrison and Coates point out that Skylax was probably punished by having his head stuck out of the Thalamian oarport, the lowermost oarport of a Corinthian-style trireme. This one was a little bigger than the two above it, and this was the one that had a leather cover on it when the ships were at sea to help keep water out of the hull. So, 
if Skylax were punished while the ship was sailing, then he may well have gotten a face full of water. Quite humiliating indeed. It is though possible that this all happened after the ships had beached for the night. The passage does say that Megabates was making his rounds of the watch on the ships, so it's possible that the only way he was doing this was on land, by walking from ship to ship to ensure that the night guards were at their posts. Ultimately, we won't know, but I prefer to envision Skylax with his head stuck out of the lowest oar port, wind whipping through his hair and face, a few waves and maybe even some fish slapping him in the face at intervals. I'm sure that dogs everywhere envied Skylax his position there. I see dogs all the time with their face stuck out of the window of a car as it whizzes down the highway, and that's kind of the mental picture I get here if I picture Skylax's head sticking out of the oar port of a trireme at sea. Back to the larger forces at play now, though. By failing to conquer Naxos, Aristagoras had basically alienated the Persians by whose mercy he remained the tyrant of Miletus. His uncle, Histiaeus, who was still trapped in Susa and his reward of a job, he was also contemplating his next move. So following the failed expedition, Aristagoras and his uncle both had revolt on the mind. Realizing his tenuous position in Miletus, Aristagoras convened his supporters in the city and asked them if they would back a revolt. All but one was in favor of revolting, and even the lone dissenter said that he just believed that Darius and Persia were too powerful a foe to go up against. When he realized that he alone stood in opposition, he relented, and his second piece of advice was one that seems to have been at the heart of the Ionian revolt. He suggested as a second option that they should, quote, see to it that they gain control of the sea. They chose to attempt to gain control of the sea through two avenues. The first avenue possibly opened up to them only because Persia had built up its navy so drastically, electing to send 200 ships to Naxos rather than the 100 that were initially requested by Aristagoras. When the siege of Naxos failed, Aristagoras made a beeline back from Miletus, aware that he was now a marked man. The Trireme fleet, though, retired to the Ionian city of Amias to lick its wounds. Although this city is today located a number of kilometers inland due to sediment buildup in the mouth of the Meander River, in 499 it was accessible from the sea, and it's really not that far from Miletus. Both cities are within the same bay area. Anyhow, with the Trireme fleet not far from Miletus, and with Aristogoras holed up there trying to organize revolt, you can easily see the hazy outline of the plan as it formed in his mind. The Persian navy, as we can call it for simplicity's sake, it was manned and commanded by subjects from the various coastal cities, people who would have had experience with sailing and naval warfare possibly, but at least maritime affairs in general. The bulk of the ships, then, were manned by Phoenicians and by Ionians. This fact reveals an underlying vulnerability in the Persian push to invade the Aegean, and then further west, 
and this is a vulnerability that will be repeatedly noted in the episodes to come. Since Persia was that land-based empire, she needed to rely on her subject peoples to man the navy, even if Persia funded the buildup of the navy. That's all fine and well. Empires with expansionary predilections can do no other than seek to incorporate her subject peoples into the expansion effort. In doing so, however, they bring those subjects into close enough proximity to the vehicles of expansion that those vehicles can be commandeered should the opportunity arise. In the paper that we've been referring back to a few times now, Walenga argues that the creation of the Persian navy before the invasion of Naxos may have created the perfect conditions for Ionian discontent to boil over into revolt. Scattered discontent is less of a danger to an empire, and with the fleet in her hands, then Persia could have suppressed any localized revolt easily. But the existence of the new fleet opened up the potential for those discontented cities to seize the fleet, and a chance to unify around the ability to control the seas. That's precisely the notion that planted itself in the mind of Aristagoras when he tasked a co-conspirator with sailing north to Myas to attempt to seize the portion of the fleet commanded by the Ionian generals. Unfortunately, Herodotus is our only source of this episode. He doesn't really give much detail at all, he says merely that a man named Iatragoras was sent there to, quote, arrest the generals who were in command of the ships. He calls these generals tyrants in a later line, and he says only that Iatragoras seized the generals and their ships through his cunning guile. So although I'm sure that an amazing story lies beneath the surface there, some type of subterfuge allowing the Ionians to seize a sizable portion of the Persian fleet were unfortunately not privy to the details. The theory proposed by H.T. Walinga is that Iatragoras may have held some type of command position in the navy, that he may have been familiar to the commanders and ships in Myas, which would then have allowed him freedom of movement to venture between ships in Myas and lay the plans to arrest the Ionians who didn't go along with his revolt, but to then sail out of the city for Miletus with the cooperation of the Ionian commanders who chose to join the resistance. Now, this bid to seize a portion of the navy was the first avenue in the plans of the Ionian rebels, and it's an immensely important one considering the cost of the navy and the ability it gave them to control the sea. Avenue number two was for Aristagoras to go on a mission of his own, this one all the way west to Sparta. Before he departed, he'd established a new form of government in Miletus. Herodotus uses the word isonomy to describe it, the idea being that all were equal under the law, and therefore it seems that Miletus was given some form of democracy. Other Ionian cities, too, established similar forms of government. Either that or the tyrants were expelled or arrested in the cities where they didn't go along. Although Herodotus indicates that Aristagoras was the mastermind behind this democratic revolution in Ionia, it seems likely that there was a more widespread group of participants in the revolt. 
that maybe Herodotus is again personalizing things in one tyrant to summarize the situation. In reality, we could possibly go so far as to call this Ionian revolt a conspiracy. Maybe. In any event, as Aristagoras boarded a ship in the harbor of a now ostensibly democratic Miletus, he had to have known that more was needed for this band of hopeful revolutionaries to be successful. Although they had pulled off a coup in seizing part of the navy, this wouldn't be nearly enough. Persia commanded the largest military that the world had ever seen, and although the navy was integral to any hopes of revolt, the ships in the harbor of Miletus wouldn't prevent an army marching in from the east. For Aristagoras, a potential confederate in the fight against Persian oppression, was Sparta, the Peloponnesian powerhouse of martial dedication. So, as Aristagoras sails out of the harbor in Miletus, we'll bring this episode today to a close. In the interest of trying to get episodes out to you all more frequently, I'm going to put a pin in things there for today. We've gotten a good feel today for the Persian approach to naval matters, not to mention how they began to utilize the navy in their first grasping reaches at expansion into the Aegean. And although the Ionians in 499 are making a valiant effort at resisting the heavy thumb of empire, next time we'll see if Sparta decides to place their thumb on the other side of the scale or not, and then we'll look at one of the earliest detailed naval battles of this time period. As always, thank you all for continuing to listen to the podcast, and thank you for your patience. Now, I normally give shout-outs to everybody who's left reviews on iTunes in the space between episodes, but iTunes is being difficult for some reason right now, and I can see that reviews were left, but for some reason the wizards behind the curtain have not seen fit to update the review list so that I can see the names of anyone who left the reviews, or the substance of what they said. I hope that will be rectified soon, though it should be, and I'll catch up on those thank yous when soonest I'm able. I can't think of any other pressing matters that need to be addressed here before I sign off, so I'll go ahead and do so with the aim of getting the conclusion of the Ionian Revolt ready for you as quickly as I can. In our next episode, we'll continue forward to discuss the continuing cascade of dominoes that lead into the Greco-Persian Wars, a time that's been heavily covered in the history books, so this is a time period we're getting into that I'll try to bring a worthwhile angle to, even if it's not a completely novel one. Alright everybody, until next time, fair winds and following seas, and thanks for tuning in to the Maritime History Podcast. <laughs>